So I'm getting, uh, becoming more and more convinced that uh, I don't have emotions. Uh, I keep watching movies that I'm supposed to cry at, uh, and then I don't cry. Um, and then I watch movies that I'm not supposed to cry at, and I do cry. Uh, Allie and I watched a, uh, a, a movie. This is why I feel like I'm, I might scientifically or biologically or something. I'm a Bible guy. I don't know stuff. Chemically, some, I don't I might have an issue, uh, and now it's been confirmed by a, um, by a, a very scientific video. I think it may have been produced even by NASA or something. This movie called Inside Out. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a documentary, uh, a real live documentary of, uh, of a, of a little girl and, uh, and they can see into her mind. It's real. Um, I thought it was real. And they, you know, they see into her mind and they see all the emotions that are controlling her. So she's got these things going on in her mind. She's pointing at something. Uh, is there something? Uh, so she's got these emotions in her mind that are, that are personified, and then they, uh, they then determine how she acts and responds. And the reason that I, I, I wonder if I have like a, an issue is so all the emotions are there. I don't know what other emotions exist. And like each person in the, in the movie has one at the center that like dominates. I don't, and like they, that, that is them. I don't have one. I don't know what I am. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'm joy. I mean, I'm happy, but I don't think I'm joy. I'm not, I'm not disgust. I'm not anger. I'm not sadness. I don't, I'm just, I'm just a human. So I don't know uh, if I have an issue or not, but, um, so what's, what's interesting is, um, the key in on something that's really, I think, pointed is, is that what happens here in our mind does determine how we live and how we act. Now, of course, uh, there's no Holy Spirit, uh, like, happening in the brain. It's just her emotions that determine everything. So Paul gives us a, uh, he gives us a, a, a big footnote to the movie Inside Out. Um, but what we see right before this in Romans 8 is Romans 7. In Romans 7, there is, we looked at this, uh, if you were with us last semester, we looked at it. We're not going to go into it in depth, but I do want to mention it because what happens in Romans 8 flows right out of Romans 7. God is answering a question from Romans 7 in Romans 8. What he's answering uh, is the question to this deep struggle that Christians experience within themselves with sin. So what's interesting, though, is if you, if you were to look at commentaries, if you look at scholarly work on, on Romans 7, Everybody, everybody split right down the middle. People cannot tell if Romans 7, where Paul says things such as this. Let me read a couple of things. Romans seven fifteen. he says this. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. In verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then he says in 23 and 24, getting pretty close to, to Romans 8, he says this. Uh, sorry, ver- starting in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? People don't know. Is this... Is Paul, I mean, he's, he's clearly a Christian when he's writing this, but is he referring to himself pre-Christian? I mean, how, how can a Christian struggle that deeply with sin? Say, I, the things I'm doing, I hate. As I'm doing them, I hate them. And the very things that I want to do, I can never seem to make happen. It's, it seems so contradictory that 
half the commentators out there think this is, Paul is talking about his pre-conversion self. That this isn't Christian Paul. There, there, no, there's, there's no chance. That Christians don't struggle with sin like that. And then when, you, it, when I was reading those commentaries, I, I felt so ashamed. I'm like, well, I, that's that pretty well. That's a pretty good autobiography of myself. I, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do, and I feel like I can't change it, and there's nothing I can do about it. And so <clears throat> there's people that are much smarter than me, much smarter than you, that land on both sides. But I think um, where I land on this, <laughs> based off of what Scripture says, but then also my own experience and the experience of every Christian I know is that Romans 7 is talking about Christian Paul. He is describing the Christian's experience. And it is this intense, deep struggle with sin. I mean, it's, I mean we know what this is like. It's so deep. It's so, um, it's so ingrained in us that um, we, we're, I mean, we can be, often be, be overcome with anxiety and fear, wondering... Am I even a Christian? I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've had um, close friends and, and, and people ask me, like, I, I don't even know if I'm saved. Like, I don't even know if it was ever real because I'm struggling with this sin, this habitual sin so hard that my, what my life tells me is that I can't be a Christian. We hold up the record of our life and say, this is what it is to be a Christian. My record of right doings versus wrongdoings. And so the question becomes, rolling out of chapter 7, when he says, this wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, is does God do anything about this? Does he help us out? Does the gospel have anything to do with this? Does it tell us anything that would help us with this struggle with sin that is so deep that super intellectual Christians would think that's not, that, that's not how it works? The question that, that Paul is answering and that God is giving to us in Romans 8 is, is the question that asks this. What does God do for a sinner like me who is fighting but so often failing. What does God do for me? A sinner who is fighting. I'm fighting my sin. I'm, I'm legitimately engaging in the battle every day. I don't see a lot of progress sometimes, but I'm fighting, but I keep failing. What does God, what does he do for me? Does he have anything to offer to me? In this passage, in Romans 8, 1 through 13, we see at least three things that God does for us, ways in which God helps us. So look with me in, uh, in Romans 8, verse 1. We're just going to look at this first verse for, for a little bit. Romans 8, 1 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That word condemnation, it's talking about there being penalty, uh, a punishment coming your way based on um, actions that you have done that would warrant that. So the idea is punishment. You're deserving of punishment. And what's interesting with this, uh, with this, with this verse is in English, to make it work in English, there's verbs. You have to have verbs to make a sentence work in English. Well, in the original language with Greek, you didn't have to have verbs to make a sentence work. So in this verse, 
There's no verbs. Okay? Why does that matter? Well, it literally reads like this. So there's no verbs, and the first word in the original language is the word no. So the the original language literally reads like this. No, therefore now, condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This kind of punchy, terse, and that, that word no is very emphatic. It's, it's no, none at all. It, no, this loud no. And it's almost, like this, it's almost like a banner statement. It's almost like you would see it on a banner. No condemnation. None. None at all. And it's, 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 it acts as this banner. It's right out of Paul rolling from wretched man that I am. Who would deliver me from this body of death? His answer to himself is, There's no condemnation, none at all, for those in Christ Jesus. It's a banner that that God is waving over us and that he hands to us to wave over ourselves. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we waving that banner over our heads or not? Are we waving some other banner? I mean, what what is that terse, short statement that when you think about yourself, this is what comes to mind? What would be on that banner? Would it be something about, I'm anxious, I'm self-sufficient, I'm proud, I've, I've got something to prove, I'm depressed. I mean, we, we've, we've got some little short quip that just, we wake up and this is, this is what defines us. This is what sets the tone for our day, for our life, for our trajectory in life. And God offers us this banner, no condemnation, no punishment. None is coming your way. And and what else do we see here? He he uses the word now. I mean, how how beautiful is that? I mean, he didn't just leave it at, there is therefore no condemnation. That is true. But he adds in the word now, right now, in this moment, tonight, today. I think so often, even myself, like I, I think like, you know, when I, when I, when I sin, when I do something that, that is rebellious in thought, word or deed or, or, or intention against God or my neighbor, that it's almost as if like this black cloud of, of condemnation just comes over my head and it's just kind of foreboding and just over me. And the only thing to do about it is to pray for forgiveness Right? That's what you do. You pray, God, forgive me for doing this, and then it goes away. But that is not, that is not how we have to live as Christians. The, the condemnation cloud that we allow to come over our heads when we do fall, when we do raise a high hand against God, there is no black cloud of condemnation anymore. It doesn't exist. And we don't have to pray for forgiveness to make that feeling go away. The forgiveness is already ours. The, 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 that kind of inner urge, like, okay, I've got to, before I can get right with God, I've got to pray, forgive me for doing this. That, that is a good and natural urge. We should feel ashamed for the things that we do that are wrong. But we're, we are lying to ourselves if we think that the, that the reason God forgives us is because we pray. The reason God forgives us is Jesus died. Jesus died for your sins and they have been washed away. 
even now, when you sin, you don't add up sins to your record that need to be washed away again. It is completely clean. Your record completely clean. You are completely washed. And so, I mean, even the condition that you feel like you walked in tonight to community worship, you, you, you might be in a, you might feel like you're in a good condition. You might feel like you're in a bad condition, an ugly condition. I don't know. Whatever condition you feel like you're in right now, this is, this is a word from God for you that now, now there is no condemnation. Not five years ago when, when you were in high school and on fire for Jesus at summer camp and there was, you know, back then when I was, before I got trapped up in some stuff that I'm not proud of now, back then there was no condemnation, but now, I don't know. And it's not the, it's not the future. When you get cleaned up, this is now, whatever condition you are in, right now, and we have to trust this. We have to trust this. It's the only thing we've, we've really got to hold on to. This passage, or this verse, continues on to say, so there's no condemnation. It's right now. And who is it for? It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, uh, this, this no condemnation banner that gets handed to you, it's all on the basis of your connection to Christ. So as Christians, we don't... The, 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 the problem with that black cloud of condemnation that we feel coming over us and then we can pray it away through our prayers of asking for forgiveness, the issue with that is we see ourselves al- alone, completely alone, standing before God without anybody beside us, without anybody in us, we just see ourselves with nothing, just naked before God, messed up, mangled. And this passage tells us it is for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is, this is what it means to, to, to grow as a Christian, to, to begin throwing out any other lens you interpret your life through and putting in the lens of your connection to Christ, seeing your problems through your connection with Christ, seeing your sins through your connection with Christ, seeing your victories through your connection with Christ. We have to see, we have to see ourselves through our connection with Christ. And this is, this is something that we, we have, we really have to let our hearts wonder at this. I, I think because it seems so unbelievable we do believe it, like we, we do, we do trust it, but it does seem so good that we're, there's still this, well, it's, I do trust it. I get it. I'm going to heaven because I trust it. But we have trouble. It's like we, 98% were there, but then there's like this 2% that's like, I just, I don't know. I, I just don't know if every single thing that I've ever done today, yesterday, tomorrow is completely washed away. I, we have trouble like just jumping into that. But what other option do we have? I mean, it's, it's either jump into it and find life and joy and hope and peace and restoration or 
continue walking in condemnation and feeling the, this weight of punishment that is supposedly coming our way when, when Christ has actually already taken that on himself and, and moved it off of us. So we, we have to let our hearts rest in the wonder of Jesus. It's truly wondrous. It's truly wonderful. And our minds, I mean, our minds naturally reject gospel logic. It, we, it just, for whatever reason, it rejects the logic of the cross, the logic of the good news of God. We think that's, there's got to be there's some catch I mean, I'll go in as much as I can, but there's got to be some catch along the way where there's some string that God pulls and, you know. So we have to ask ourselves, what happens if we forget this? What happens if we forget that there is now, right now, no condemnation? What happens? There's two things that happen. One is that we feel far more guilt than we should. We feel far more unworthy than we should. We feel far more pain than we should. And we end up punishing ourselves for the very things that Christ was already punished for. Like, we have this knee-jerk reaction to put ourselves on the cross. When we... When we sin. We feel like, okay, I've got to slap myself on the back. Retribution. I've got to take it. Instead of allowing Christ to be the one who takes it for you and, and, and throw yourself on that. So when we, don't, when we don't remember this, in the middle of our days, moment by moment, when we don't remember this, especially in the moment of temptation or in failure, we feel far more guilt than we should. We try to punish ourselves because of it. The second thing that happens is we feel far less motivation to be holy. When we forget that there's now no condemnation, when we think, okay, there's no condemnation, but not right now, or when we think there's just, no con- there, there's just condemnation, it's coming my way, I, I'm, I'm guilty, there's punishment coming. We don't have motivation to become like Jesus because there's no affection for Jesus. Jesus isn't good. I mean, what has he done for you? He died on the cross for your sins and then God's going to punish you for your sins. Which is it? Like, is God just or is he playing tricks? Either, either Christ took it all or he didn't. If we forget that there is now no condemnation, we will be, we will be motivated uh, to obey God, but not out of love and gratitude, but out of fear and out of a sense of obligation. Fear that if I don't, I'll get in trouble. And obligation, well, this is what I have to do so I don't get in trouble. Instead of love and gratitude. I mean, and I... There's been times when my heart is truly grasped, when the Spirit, we'll, we'll, we'll see here in a minute that, um, that the Spirit of God is mentioned, I think, almost 20 times in, in chapter 8 of Romans. The Spirit, there's times when, when he's opened my heart to see this, and 
And immediately, worship just comes out. I'm not talking songs. I'm talking my heart leaps for joy. In those moments when, when the gap, that 2% gap gets filled with the gospel. I am completely free. I'm completely clean. Not because of my own doing, but because of Christ. And actually, uh, it's when we, when we do live under a sense of condemnation, that actually strengthens our desire to sin. It strengthens sin in us. Right? That's Paul's whole thing in chapter 7. He's like, I feel like I'm under the law still. I, I'm having trouble trusting that Christ has fulfilled it for me. And so when the law comes back over me and I keep failing and I feel the weight of it and I can't please God, we end up releasing all that pressure through sin. We, all that bent-up energy of, of wanting to try to please God and not be able to do it and failing at it. Sin becomes an outlet for us. John Calvin, uh, one of the reformers from the 16th century, talks about faith uh, in, a, in a really particular way. Sometimes I think we think that faith is just kind of this general trusting what God says, and that is part of it. But the way that, that Calvin understands faith is, is particular. That faith is trusting not just what God has said, and not just his promises in general, but trusting that God is kindly disposed towards you. Like his, his will is to be nice to you because of Jesus. It wasn't before. Now it is though that God actually wants to treat you well. That God actually loves you because he wants to love you. And not only does he love you, he likes you. So faith, this takes faith to trust this. But faith, this is, this is the very, this is at the heart of the very understanding of faith. This is where we live. When we walk by faith, it is this. It is trusting all that God has said, and, and particularly that he has said that he will act kindly and benevolently towards us. So that's the first thing that we see. The first thing that God does for sinners like us who are fighting but failing is he gives us Jesus who bore our condemnation for us. So the penalty of sin is gone. There's, there's nothing coming your way. You can trust that. You have to trust that. I have to trust that for the sake of my life. The second thing that we see is what God does for those who are fighting but, but failing so often is, is he gives us the spirit who broke our bondage to sin. Look in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul uses the word, the, the Bible uses the word law in a number of different ways. The way it's being used here is this idea of a force or a power. The power of the spirit of life has set you free from the power of sin and death. The force of it. The authority of the power of the spirit has set you free from the authority of the power of sin. He explains this um, in verses 3 through 4, that it's Jesus dying takes our legal penalty of our sin and our, our condemnation. He takes that from us. But it's the Spirit who also empowers us to obey God and to not sin. So he set us free 
We were, we were in slavery and he broke the chains. We're not enslaved, but we still sin. How does that happen? So we've been set free, but our enemy's not dead yet. The one who, one who got us into slavery, who we were slaves to, is not dead yet. There's still a battle raging within us. So we can trust that Christ has taken the penalty for our sins. We can trust that the Spirit has broken our bondage to sin. And then the third thing that we see really throughout the rest of this passage in 5 through 13 is that the Spirit helps us kill our sin. Look with me in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This, this word to set your mind. The word mind is, a, is, even in English, carries a pretty strong force. Like, I mean, if, if, if your parents say, you mind your own business, you know, whenever I hear that phrase, I don't know why, I just immediately imagine like this little like three-year-old with a big bowl of peas that he doesn't want to eat. And so he's like messing with his older brother's food. And his mom says, you know, mind your own business. I don't know why that just... That little just cartoon just kind of like flickers through my mind. Uh, the mind your own business carries more weight than think about your own business, Jimmy. You know, like there's a little more weight to like, hey, you need to worry about your own self and just set your mind to it, all right, right now. And it carries that same force here in Romans 8, the, the idea of minding the spirit. There's a tight connection between thinking and, live, and living. What goes on in here affects what goes on out there, what we say, what we do. And so Paul calls us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. What does this mean? It means to be preoccupied with what the Spirit is preoccupied with. So what is the Spirit preoccupied with? Well, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about that. But there's at least three things that we see here in Romans 8 that the Spirit is preoccupied with this. We see in verse 14 that the Spirit is preoccupied with the fact that in Christ we are adopted. We're not orphans. In 15 through 16, we see that the Spirit is preoccupied with the fact that in Christ we are loved. And in 26 through 27, we see that the Spirit is preoccupied with the fact that in Christ we are welcomed. So we are adopted, loved, and welcomed. That is what we are to set our minds on. And that's right there, when we set our minds on that, when we lay hold of that, that has the power to pull us out of the Romans 7 struggle of sin that is so deep that commentators thought that Paul wasn't a Christian. We're drilling something into our heads. We're drilling something in. Why not this? Why not this? I listened to a podcast of a a pastor that I I really respect. And he uh, talked about how he breaks up his day into four portions. Morning, afternoon, evening, and night watch. And at, eat, uh, at the end of each three of those portions, so the end of morning is like right before lunch, and then afternoon is like right before you uh, would come home from work or get out of class around five-ish. And then um, evening at the end of that is like right before you go to bed, and then night watch is while you're asleep. He says that each, at, at the beginning of, uh, or sorry, at the end of each of those blocks of the day, he asks himself three questions, and he does them with three C's. He says that he asks himself uh, a question of cares, carnalities, and consolations. 
What, what cares were there in that block of time? So if it's right, so if it's the morning portion, it's right before lunch, and I'm before I go to lunch, I'm 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 prayerfully asking God, what what things made me anxious this morning? Where was I fearful of man? Where where was I worried? Where was I insecure? Where was I worried? And confess those things and ask God to help me process those things or carnalities. What sins did I struggle with this morning? Where was I tempted? And what consolations, what, what blessings were there that, that came out of this morning that maybe if I would, would have waited a week, I would, would have been so small I would have forgotten it. And I think that is a health exercise that, that I've, begin, I've begun to adopt, not four times a day, it's a little much for me, but even just like a morning and an evening of just kind of checking myself, breaking up the day and developing this rhythm to, to regularly open my mind and my heart to the Spirit. And saying, where am I not trusting that I'm adopted, that I'm loved and that I'm welcomed, that there's no condemnation, that the power of sin has been broken over me? And this really comes down to, um, as I'm wrapping up, uh, the band can go and uh, come up. This really comes down to this, this, this inclination in us to not trust that God is actually kind to us. So I was listening to uh, a sermon earlier this morning, actually, um, of a local pastor in town, and he was sharing this story of a friend of his who um, had three biological children of his own, and um, he and his wife prayed, and, and they decided that God was leading them to adopt uh, a couple of kids from China. And so they went over to China, and they, um, they ended up adopting these two girls. And both of them had some physical defects. Um, both of them had like cleft palates, cleft lips, just some stuff that wasn't perfectly right with their appearance. And before they came home, they were walking throughout this market area in, in China, and a Chinese woman saw them and, and stopped them and asked them, said, hey, is, are, these, are these girls that you are adopting right now? And they said, yeah, we are. And, and she said, that's great. She said, she said um, I think that you guys are probably Christians, aren't you? And they were like, yeah, we are actually. And they're like, how'd you know? And they're like, they're like, because only the Christians take the bad ones. Only the Christians take the bad ones. And why, why do you think that Christians have re- the reputation of taking the bad ones? Because it's God who takes the bad ones. He, God, is, God goes after not those that are all put together, but those that are bad, those that aren't put together. And that had sunken into them and it translated to how they were living. And that is what we have to trust, that God takes the bad ones, the ones that nobody wants. When our hearts condemn us, we have to speak this truth to us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen.